listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I'm going to tell you something, people. I was, uh, I was on Facebook the other day, and it came up in that section of people you may know. And a guy came up named Jim Farrowell. And when I was a freshman in college, me and Jim were inseparable. Okay, we hung out, we, we drank, we smoked, we chased women. We did what kids did in the 80s when they were in college. Well, I remember he wore this t-shirt that I really dug. And it was from a place in Hoboken called the Clam Broth House. And on Thanksgiving, he brought me back, after the break, he brought me back one of those shirts. Now, Jim left after our freshman year. I haven't seen him since. That was the first time he even popped in my mind, but I still remember that shirt, and the reason I'm bringing that shirt up is because I was a South Jersey kid, Jimmy was a North Jersey kid, and you know, I didn't really know a lot of North Jersey kids, but my guest today is a North Jersey guy, and he's from Bayonne, which is about, I think, 8 to 10 miles from Hoboken, and my guest is Robert Tepper. How you doing, Robert? How's it going, Stephen? How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Now, have you, have you been to the Clam Broth House? I'm sorry, broke up a little there. What, what, was, what was the question? Have you been to the Clam Broth House in Hoboken, or have you heard of it? Yeah. Okay, so here's the deal. As a little kid, this is what your parents did, right? They went in, they got a pot of steamers, probably two pots of steamers, a whole thing of butter, right? <laughs> and you walked in, and there was a couple of pitchers of beer, and the kids, you know, we're little kids from Jersey, we're trying to steal the beer, we're trying to drink the beer. It was such a staple in our family. It was like, oh, we're going to Chris you got to remember, this is like, a, you know, 55, 60, you know, lower middle class people. We don't have like a lot of money to go out and eat, but we're getting these big pots of steamers. Yes, Clambroth House was a staple in my house. I remember it very well. Well, it's funny because I remember that shirt. And as I said, because I was from, I'm, I'm from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I went to Stockton State, which is in South Jersey. You're, but... you're, from, exit, you're from Exit 3. I know Cherry Hill. Yeah, I'm from, exactly. I used <laughs> I used to, I used to work at that Turnpike stop. Every kid from my high school used to wash dishes. It was a Marriott, then it was a Bob's Big Boy. But yeah, but we, right. but he wore that shirt, and I I thought it was the coolest shirt ever because I wasn't really familiar with Hoboken. I wasn't familiar with North Jersey, and then as you said, you used to go there as a kid. I found out it was like this this landmark, and I heard it closed though. Yeah, it's. I don't think it's there. You know what else used to be there is the Gibson Guitar Factory, which was awesome, man. I remember buying a cherry red Gibson there. You know, so Hoboken was like was like an industrial town, and uh, it was it was kind of like Bayonne. There was these little towns, like it was right outside the tunnel from New York, right? So you, you drive right past it, past it, and then as the years went by, it got gentrified. Like in the '90s, you know, they started to like. You know, make it like people who worked in New York were starting to move to Hoboken. There were some good uh, '90s rock clubs there. You know, I um, my my son Max used to go stand online there. I think it's Central Central Avenue. I'm not positive. I'm not positive. But there were some great great bands. You saw Dinosaur Junior. I mean, Hoboken always managed to hang in there with with something. You know, it's it's it's. I guess it's cool. It, it, it's, it's really like don't blink, you'll miss it. You know, I mean, it's right there. Now, yeah. now, growing up, growing up in New Jersey, uh, what was some yeah. of the music you listened to as a kid? Because you're ten years older than me, so I mean, you know, I grew up and we listened to Springsteen, Southside, Johnny. But you're pretty much, you know, you were around with them. But what was the music you were listening to as a kid? Well, look, I mean, how blessed was I? I came up in the golden age of rock and roll. There was no rap, you know, there was no rap uh, stations. There was no R&B stations. You put on FM stations, they played R&B. They played, they played everything. They played the Supremes, they played the Four Tops. They played the Beatles, they played the Stones. They played Hendrix, they played 10 years after. I mean, I couldn't tell you how fortunate I was. I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to express how lucky I was come up with all that great music with no boundaries. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but it was like, it was wide open. And we loved it. Plus, the pop music of those days was phenomenal. I mean, you know, you'd have WMCA, Scott Muni, this is Scott Muni in New York, this is WMCA, you know, and he'd be playing like, you know, uh, you know, Dave Clark Five and, uh, you know, Supremes and I don't know. There was no bad music. It was all great, except for maybe the, you know, some of the 
really, really cheesy stuff like the Pat Boone stuff and all that kind of stuff nobody listened to. But, you know, we were pretty fortunate how, how we got such great stuff, you know. Now, now when... You know, the when did you start? When did you start playing music? When did you pick up? When did you sit there and pick up a guitar? I mean, there's a picture on your website of you're a very young kid with a guitar. I'm sure you weren't. You might have been playing it then. Well, but when did you start playing? Well, here, well, I I lived. You know, we lived on 13th Street in Bayonne, and I had a basement. You know, with a piano in it. So rehearsals were always at my house, right? And we and we it was. The, the word garage band didn't come from nowhere. We, we'd open up the garage after we learned a couple of tunes, and my sister would bring some of her friends down, and, you know, we'd be playing. So I would say I was like 12, 13, and we were playing pizza parlors, because in Jersey, in Bayonne, there was like a bar on every other, every other corner, you know? So uh, we, we started playing, and we, we came up in that whole thing, man, and then it got psychedelic, and then we were going to New York and buying clothes, you know, with bell bottoms and long British jackets. I mean, we were, we were, obs I was obsessed. You know, I was totally obsessed. And it started like 12, 13. Plus, I had an older sister who was a decent singer, and we used to sing folk music because the folk, whole folk thing came. I mean, and I loved it all, man. I was very open. It, it, music was my thing, man. I just, I loved Joan Baez. We had the Weavers. We had, uh, you know, um, I'm just I'm I'm spacing on some of the stuff, but you know I I came up it, it was really quite an education in music, you know. Now, now it's an education, and you know, and that's and that is what's great, you know. The like guy I'm sitting there, you know, I was an '80s guy, and I had the new wave, yeah. and then even the met a lot of right. metal, and I loved all that. But now, for you, when you're growing up, you got garage bands. When do you when right. do you start writing songs? Okay, so I was in a band, and we were, uh, the band was the Malibus, just a really cheesy name, but we played a lot of, a lot of cover tunes, but we did get an opportunity to record, and we wrote this song called Black is White, and I used to have a vinyl of it, I used to have a vinyl pressing, so say I'm like 17, 18, you know, maybe even younger, and I remember going to New York, and we went to a studio, and we recorded, and I was always interested in, in writing and it, it kind of, as I got older, I was, I was, I got, I got more and more interested in it. You know, uh, when we were that young, I know this is, this is going to sound a little weird, but like we were kind of intimidated a little bit because the music that was out was seemed so iconic to us. You know, when you listen, like you put on Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues and you go, how the hell am I ever going to do that? You know, and you know, it, it's it's just it just all seems so huge. And then you put on Hendrix and listen to Castles Made of Sand. But eventually, I'd be in bands and we'd all start writing. You know, and and I was pretty good. You know, and then you know, as I got older, um, you know, I moved to New York and I lived and I lived in New York and I started writing more and more. And then my first. My first publishing gig was a place called Cam America. And Cam America's whole thing was um, they they published Fellini's soundtracks to all his movies. But they did a little pop too, right? They had this thing, they had this, uh, they had, a, you know, a couple of, a couple of writers. And me and this writer, we were, we were writing. And that was my first cut. My first cut was a song called This Is Love for Paul Anka. And it made the charts. I mean, I was like very fortunate. I'm first. The first song that I got cut by somebody actually became a hit. I think it went like top fifty. And uh, you know, Paul Anka was known. If we're going way back, I know your fans probably don't remember Paul Anka, but you do. I don't know if even you do. You know, and uh, but that was my first. You know, uh, foray into into writing, and uh, and from there, I I just kept going. And then I wrote with Benny, and then we. You know, we wrote Into the Night, and when I wrote uh, Might Have Been Love and a bunch of stuff on his record. And then it was starting to get serious. You know, we were doing albums, and you had to come up with songs, and we did stuff. And I remember, and I could keep going. Stop me if you have a question, because I could just keep going. Uh, so I'm working with Benny, and, you know, we had had a big hit with Into the Night. And, you know, it got pretty crazy. You know, it got pretty nuts with him. And I said, if I'm going to, if I'm going to, 
keep killing myself with this rock and roll lifestyle. I'm going to do it for myself. And I, I remember I was living on 94th Street between Lexington 3rd and New York with my family. And I pretty much locked the door and started writing. I just started writing, man. Writing now, as much as I could. And, and that became the first Robert Tepper record with No Easy. And I wrote No Easy and all that stuff. Well, now, now how did... That's kind of... Now, how did you end up writing a Paul Anka song? Was it because you, you, as you said, you were it was like a staff writing job? But did you? I mean, how yeah, did we you? Were, we, well, we we were kind of we were kind of staff writers. I was writing with this girl Madeline Sunshine, who uh, years later, not that many years ago, we wrote a musical together that was on in L.A. here. And but originally we had met each other, and um, we started writing, and we were writing and writing. We met this woman, Faye Rosen who was working up at Cam America. And she really liked us, and she got the song to Paul Anka. That's how that happened. And uh, he loved it. And I remember, you know, he was kind of a, he was kind of an old school guy. He brought us out, we, I don't know, we were in Long Island at some gig of his, and went up to his hotel room and said hi to Paul. And look, it was all overwhelming at the time. We were pretty young, I don't know, we were like mid-20s maybe, you know, maybe a little later, you know. Now, now how did you meet Benny? Benny, uh, so here's, here's the story of how I met Benny. Do you remember Neil Bogart and Casablanca Records? Does that ring a bell to yes. you at all? Yeah. Okay. Okay, Neil Bogart was like one of the first people, in my, at least in my consciousness, who had started an independent label, right, called Casablanca. And he had Benny, and I believe he had... Uh, Oh man, he had a, a couple of hours. You got to look it up. I was going to say blonde, like early Blondie, but or, or and he had, but he had a bunch of acts. I'm not, I'm not swearing to God on the Blondie thing, but he had a bunch of acts, <clears throat> and it was called, and it was called Casablanca. There was this other label he had called Private Stock. So Benny was taking voice lessons at this place, and I was st starting to, you know, see if I could get my voice better. And all of a sudden, Neil Bogart walks in. And this guy with a with a, a fur coat and in the dead of winter in New York walks into the walks in and says, "Hey, man, you know." And I said, "Who's this guy?" And my and the teacher says, "Who oh, I can't remember his name. Sorry." He said, "You ought to know this guy. You ought to meet this guy. His name's Benny Mardonis. He's going to be doing an album called Thank God for Girls." And for some, the, the heavens must have opened up because I had not done anything. Man, I had this Paul Anka song. Okay. That's all I had done. I hadn't done anything in a rock theme, you know? And we got together, we wrote Might Have Been Love, we wrote Too Young, we wrote Into the Night, and, you know, the rest was rock and roll history, man. I, I You know, it, 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 it came together. But I met Benny through Neil Bogart. Now, now, when you sat there and you said, you know, you wanted to get, you said you had to start writing for yourself and doing this rock and roll thing, how did you go yes. about that, and how did you get your first record deal? Because as you said, you had writing you had writing credit credentials, but no one really knew who you were. So, so what was your path to getting getting that first record deal? Okay, so here we are. We did, we finished the Mardonis. I finished I finished the the Into the Night run. You know, Benny's at the point of you know self destructing. I I go off on my own. Okay, I go I literally. Go back to New York to 94th Street and start writing. You know, for myself, I said it. I want to see if I could do this, man. It was like something I wanted to prove for myself. So I sit down in my apartment. I wrote a bunch of things. I got this guy. I think Bruce Garfield was from uh, Capitol Records. Put me in an electric ladyland, and I cut about five demos. And the five demos at the time, I think I redid a Beatles song. I'm looking through you. I did a rock version. I think Soul Survivor was in there. And there was like three or four songs. And that was my tape, okay? I got a manager. I got this girl, Vicky Germaze, who uh, who later went on to be a big A&R person up in Atlantic. And Vicky was like kind of shopping me around. And it was going okay. And, uh, you know, I had done, I had met uh, John Collader. I had done The Ritz. I had a band, I did Tracks. I don't know if you remember Tracks. Tracks was like this really small club that everybody played in New York, okay? And uh, Bellucci was down there, and all these said Desmond Child was down there. And uh, so I did a, a couple of 
down, but I'm not getting arrested, okay? Steven, I can't get a, I can't get a deal. And I'm in New York, and finally, I got a friend, Guy Marshall, him and I, we get an apartment in Silver Lake, and cutting box tops, box tops from cereal boxes, we get plane flights. I sold a Fender Rhodes. We, get a, we, we go and stay in L.A. I said, I'm going to make the rounds in L.A., man. And I go into people's offices, and I'm singing on top of people's desks, okay? I'm grabbing squeegees. I'm grabbing whatever I can. As soon as they put the demo on, I'm kicking shit off their desk, and they go, there's no easy. You know what I mean? I'm, like, giving it everything I got. Some people are getting, get the fuck out. Excuse me, I don't know. Get the hell out of here. You know, you're at your mind. You're nuts. And there was a guy, Richie Weiss, from Scotty Brothers, who was as crazy as I am, and said, I love you, I love your energy, and he said, we're going to sign you, I'm going to make sure we sign you, and that's how I got my first, that's how I got my first record deal, by jumping on desks. Now, now when you got the first deal, you had demo songs, right. but were you, were you ready to, did you have all the material, were you ready to put that first album together did you have how many songs did you have when you were putting on that first yeah, I mean, album I would say look I only had nine songs on my first record which wasn't horrible for back then right uh, we kind of ran out of time uh, the, the 10th song was going to be a song called Le Bellage which wound up being on Pat Benatar's record right because I kept writing and you know the, the process was a little was a little hard I had, if that's what you call loving, I didn't put the Beatles song on my record. I, I uh, you know, I had written the rest. Uh, they were written on keyboards. I had most of it, you know. But again, it was only nine songs, and we still hadn't have a producer. We had to find Joe Ciccarelli yet, who was going to produce my first record, which is a great story because Joe came to, there was like this music event on in New York City, and Vicky and I, my manager at the time, we went to the event, she met Joe and said, hey, you know, and Joe had been working with, like, Oingo Boingo. He was a little more alty, you know what I mean? He was doing, like, kind of, like, more of the different 80s stuff. He had worked with Frank Zappa and a bunch of people. But Joe and I hit it off immediately, man. Joe and I hit it off immediately. And, you know, he produced my first record. So, yeah, it, you know, I had enough to get to get it through. Would I have rather had more on there? I don't know. I was, I was pretty green, to tell you the truth, Stephen. I was like... Just trying to, I was like, just trying to keep it together, you know, just trying to get it done, you know. I gotta, I gotta ask you something. You said when you moved to L.A., sure. you lived in uh, Silver yeah. Lake. What was Silver Lake then? Because people, just so you know, Silver Lake is like the hipster capital of the world now. What, what was Silver Lake when you moved there? We, I used to get up every day and I'd run, and, you know, I'd try to like do, do something. I'd walk around the, the reservoir up there. It was nothing like it was like now, okay? It was like, I mean, it, it was apartments, like 70s-looking apartments, hippies, people, you know, gays, uh, streets, everything, man. It was like, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was free, you know? And uh, I remember we had this cool little apartment, and the guy was great, and he was like all over the place. He was a nut. And, but Silver Lake was not what it is today. People, the, the, the hipster capital of the world, right? But my oldest son lives down there right now. Right now, my granddaughter is in, is in Silver Lake. You know? <laughs> and, uh, I, and uh, you know, so I go there, I go there occasionally, but you're right, it's like too cool for the room. It's, it's almost painful. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's crazy. Philadelphia has become like that too. Like, places, because I was, oh, I, I moved away it. for so long. And the places now, I'm like, wait a second, Fishtown's a uh, hip. I said, no one even right. wanted to go into Fishtown before. Yeah, they don't realize what it was before. It's like people lived there because they didn't have any money, right? <laughs> people went to Silver Lake because it was kind of arty, and it was kind of like, you know, you'd get these big old 70s apartments, like with, I mean, ceilings, like 12-foot, 14-foot ceilings, you know, old Spanish style. I, you know, what would that run to now? About four or five a month? You know, it would be crazy. You know? <laughs> now, now the, the, the album comes out, and and how's it doing? What What's the word on the street about it? Where What were the reviews like? All right, so so here's what happened. So I'm with the Scotty Brothers, okay? Now, the Scotty Brothers, 
personally get to know Stallone because I know one of your songs ended up on Cobra did you get to know him or was he just did he become a fan okay so here it is and I've, I've 
believe two things are true, okay? The first thing I believe is true is that famous people make horrible friends, okay? Because they ain't living like you're living, my friend. You know, they're, they're not in the same... They are not in the same hemisphere as you. They're not breathing the same air, okay? And number two, and, and, and number two you know, uh, you know, so... So, uh, you know, movie stars make horrible friends. And I forgot what the second thing that was true is. I'm, I'm spacing, but I will remember. Okay. So, um, I'm hanging out at a place called Columbus. And Columbus is like in the 70s on the east side. I'm living in New York City, right? And I'm going there and hanging out. And I see Frank all the time. Okay. I see Frank all the time. And he's hanging out there. Hey, Robert, what's up? And Stallone would come in every now and then. And Stallone comes in, and he was always very nice to me. Always very nice to me. I mean, the night of the opening, I sat at his table, man, with Rob Lowe and his wife at the time, whoever she was, and it was me and my girlfriend, and, you know, and, and like I said, there was, like, a lot of famous people there. And, you know, he kept pointing me, saying, you're next, man. You are going to be the next huge thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So anytime... You know, I, I've seen him, which is maybe, I don't know, two, three, four times maybe. You know, he's always been cool, you know. But, you know, are we tight buds? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> now, now the album comes out. You don't get the support. And so what, right. what did you decide to do? Because you're, you're coming but you're coming back with a follow-up. How was, was there studio support for your follow-up? Well, not really. I did Modern Madness, which was kind of very disjointed record. You know, I mean, the fan fans love it. I, you know, to me, it wasn't a great. It wasn't my greatest effort. You know, um, they, they, uh, Scotty Brothers is reluctant for me to make the record I want to make. They don't want Joe to produce it. You know, and uh, you know they want me to get another producer. I didn't want to get another producer. Uh, they're playing me some songs and stuff. It was very disjointed, and it was it was the beginning of the end. It was the beginning of them wanting to drop me. We kind of did the record. The record came out. It didn't really do anything. We I think we did one video called The Unforgiven, you know, which is was, was kind of cool, you know. Um, but no, that it wasn't wasn't have wasn't happening, you know. Uh, the other thing that Stallone did was he did try to do it again with me with a song off my first record called Angel of the City with Cobra. You know, I, I know we kind of skipped over that. I didn't know if, if, if you care about that at all. But Cobra was was a movie that he put another song in. So, you know, um, by the time I moved on to that second record, I, you know, I didn't think too much was happening, man. And I think the label, had, by that time, they were pissed off at me because I didn't... You know, I didn't want to do it at Scotty Brothers. I wanted to do it at a different studio. I wanted to do it in Burbank. You know, um, at a studio there. I wish I remembered the name of that cat. You know, that that uh, place, this lunch place, this cafeteria-like place. You you probably know it. You passed it a million times. And uh, you know, uh, it was right near there where I recorded. You know. Now. So that was it. The second, the second record was a bad experience. For well, me. not great. Now, what's going through your mind at that point? Because you had had, you know, everyone knows No Easy Way Out. It goes up the charts. You you don't get the support. You Are you pissed off at the industry? Or are you saying, I'm, I'm going to persevere? Are you, are you pulling that New Jersey out of you? You know, Jersey strong? Or what's going on through your head? You know, I, I wouldn't say I was Jersey strong at the time. Because you got to remember... The, the 90s are coming and the whole musical wave is about to change radically, right? You're, you're about you're about to, you know, the, the Pearl Jams and the Nirvanas are about to come in in the 90s, right? And uh, people aren't caring about, you know, AOR rock and roll that much at that time. And it's kind of going to be very forgotten and pushed into its own separate corner. So... You know, I, I was Jersey tough in the fact in the fact that I never stopped doing music, man. I mean, I I never stopped doing music. You know, I kept writing, I kept singing, I kept I produced, I I learned about engineering and 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 how to make records, and I kept kept doing. You know, I still had a passion for it. You know, but did I get did I get back to where I was? You know, or, originally, no. So it did not happen. 
So what do you do after March Madness? What do you, as in your career path, do? Because it has to be frustrating. But you know you have talent because okay. you, you had a record deal. So here's the thing that happens. Okay, so um, I'm hanging out. Uh, you know, besides all the personal stuff, there's a ton of personal shit that I personally don't want to get into. You know, I'm now living upstate in, uh, in upstate New York. You know, and I get a phone call from a guy. I don't know if you remember, in the early 90s, the bands were being put together, like uh, Foreigner and, uh, I don't know, yeah, I think Foreigner, maybe not, but uh, Bad Company had a new singer, and they were kind of taking bands that had, like, a, a name and putting them out there. So some guy comes up to me, and he, he's hunting me down, and he goes, hey, man, I'm in L.A., I want to put Iron Butterfly together, and we want you to be the lead singer. I said, really? I said, that's very interesting. I'm having troubles in my second marriage, looking for any excuse to get out of town. So I come back to L.A., and we start working on an album, which later wound up to be the MTM album, which was kind of released. But it wound up being a Robert Tepper album because it was not well-managed, the guy who was raising the money was a nightmare. Um, we had a bunch of those guys playing on the stuff. It came out pretty good. We got some good songs, but, you know. And, you know, that actually, that album came out, and it was actually pretty cool. But again, the musical vibe of that time was not what I was doing, if you know what I mean. It was, it was about to change radically. How did it change radically? Okay, so... Now, I mean, I had older boys. I, I had I had three three kids at this time. I'm listening to what they're listening to, and to this day, you know, I still have kids, and I'm always listening to their music, man. So, what's happening is Pearl Jam. What's happening is uh, is the whole Nirvana thing. What's happening is Seattle. What's happening is all that kind of rock and roll, and it's good, man. It's not shit. It's excellent, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, then there's Dinosaur Jr., there's Jawbox, there's all these alternative kind of bands uh, uh, coming out. And that's where rock and roll is going now. And, you know, AOR Rock becomes more of a footnote, you know. Uh, maybe ACDC releases something that's doing well. Maybe Def Leppard came out with something at that point, maybe, you know. Toto was still around a little bit when my kids were younger, but by this point that we're talking about, those bands are definitely feeling the pinch of, of what's about to happen. So, what do you do? I mean, I know you came out with an album in 90, uh, what was it, 96? Right, so what I do is I make that record, right? That, that kind of implodes. And then what happens is I decide I'm going to start learning how to engineer. I want to make records, okay? I want to I want to put the microphones up. I want to be the one. I don't want to sit in places for hours and not get what I want, okay? So I kind of, I don't kind of. I start building a studio. I start putting a studio in my house with a board, and I start producing people. You know, one of the guys I produce is, uh, you know, uh, Freebo, this guy, uh, he worked with, uh, you know, uh, he was, he was a bass player for uh, Bonnie Raitt. And I start co-writing, doing some co-writes with him, and I'm co-producing and engineering and mixing, all right? And that's what I started to do. I started to work behind the scenes, you know, as someone who, oh, this is how you do this, and people are coming to me. I can't say anybody, like, really famous, but I was always working on something, you know? And I got a couple of songs and some TV shows out here, and... And a couple of movie cuts. I had something on, uh, uh, what was it? Um, oh my gosh, I'm spacing on it now. But it's just, uh, you know, I'm not killing it, but I ain't, but I'm making money as an engineer. You know what I mean? People are hiring me, you know, to do this, do that, help them arrange. I'm a singer, so I can help you sing your songs. I know how to, I know how to produce singers. I know how that works, you know? So, I wasn't sitting still, and I'm and I'm always writing. Now, now I, I know you went to Europe and started doing shows, and I guess that's where you met yeah. Pablo Padilla. Padilla, 
how well, did that happen? Here's what happened. Okay, so so I put out this uh, new life story, right? Because all these songs I have, and I'm working with all these singer songwriters, and you know, uh, you know, and working with some really good musicians, man. Some people who are really good, and I'm still singing. I said, you know what? I got like a bunch of songs around, so I start doing this record called, but you know, um, I and start putting this collection of songs. I mean, I played everything on that record, except I think Mark Goldenberg wrote one song with me, Jackson Brown's guitar player, and uh, and and that was on New Life Story. But New Life Story was about me getting back out as an artist and releasing some new music. And, um, and then, so I released New Life Story, and this guy Indigo Balboa hears about this in Spain and starts asking me if I want to do shows in Madrid in Cartagena, and I go, that would be awesome. So they bring me over to Europe. I do a show there. I do another show over there. They bring me over to a festival in England. I do a show there, and people are starting to talk about me a little bit on the on, on uh, Facebook and 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 Twitter and and all these things. And I'm starting to realize that I still have somewhat of a decent following. I don't know if this is going to make any sense to you, but I didn't actually know if anybody gave a shit about me as an artist, you know? And there was still a lot of people who were like, wow, Robert, we love this, man. We love that you're back. We love that you're doing this. When are you going to do an album that's like kind of rocking, you know? When are you going to go back to big guitars again? And I'm like, all right, all right, we'll see, we'll see, you know? So now, flash forward, you know, you're after Europe, 2015, yeah. 2015, you do Ain't No Rules. Right. How did you come about yeah. to do that? Because it was a long layoff between your albums. Yes, because I'm, I'm actually busy, you know? I'm actually busy producing and writing and engineering, you know, uh, in those years with, with different with different people. I, I built a new studio at my house in L.A., you know, and I had it, like, right now, I have it right behind my house. And... Again, I'm, you know, there's a long layoff, and I'm like, it's kind of weird. It's like I'm helping other people, and I'm like not thinking about myself in a big way, you know, as an artist. I'm just not, you know. I'm saying, oh man, you're in your 60s. Who's going to give a shit? But I start when I was over doing the New Life Story record, right, and doing shows. So then I start doing. Um, you know, they start having me at the whiskey once every couple of months. And, you know, there seems to be a clamor kind of, kind of for me. And I'm putting together another acoustic record, like Ain't No Rules I put out. I put uh, um, Looking for the Love. I put out a couple, I don't know, three or four, which are all going to be part of a, an album called Stagger. And then when I did those shows in Spain, I met this guy, Pablo Padilla, who is an guitar, amazing guitar player. So I come back and uh, Pablo is like, let's see, Pablo's going to school in, in, in Los Angeles. I go, Pablo, what are you doing? He goes, oh, Roberto, como esta usted? How are you? I go, I'm doing fine, man. What's going on? Comes over to the studio. Fill in the blanks, man. Here we go. Okay. So he wants, he said, man, we should do a rock record, you know? And I, and I hadn't felt driven to do that, man. I had not felt driven to do that. And then I finally saw the light, okay? Sorry, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> no, what made you see the light? Here's what made me see the light, okay? Um, I see in Pablo a young guy who still loves the music of the 80s and AOR in general, right? And I look back and I go, and I, and I say to myself, self, what is it about that music that was so cool? What made it have some swagger? What made you want to be a part of that thing? And not only a part of it, but like a big part of it, you know? Um, maybe not the largest star, but I had a song that had a pretty big impact, you know? And um, I'm like, so I start listening and I go, you know what? It's, it's, it's the... It's the MTV connection, man. It's 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 the cinematic connection. Why that music was so great was that it made movies. It 
had so much atmosphere. The, the keyboards were the atmosphere. The guitars were the, were large. Everything was bigger than life. The drums were gated and reverbed and sounded fucking amazing. The engineers of that time were great, and it was like, and the world was in such an accepting place. Like before, if you if, if I were to put out that record, like. Seven, ten years ago, maybe nobody would have given a shit, you know? Except maybe, you know, the niche people who listen to that music. But now the walls have come down. I mean, I, you know, Toto's back. And, and I just saw, well, who else could I see the other day? And this other band is back. Everybody's coming. Because the better the internet got, the more you're seeing that people were listening to everything. So I sat down with Pablo. I said, this is, this is what I love, man. I want to make a record. That is, what if the 80s didn't stop and the best parts of the 80s, you know, you got Pink Floyd, you got all these, you know, was still making records then and making beautiful records. How can we make like a, just a classy, expensive sounding great record? And that's what I set out to do. And I, I'm not saying I was 100% successful, but better than the rest was, was, was an effort that I was extremely proud of and felt like this, this I can sing, man. This I can get behind. This I can love. This I can put my heart into. Now, you know? now, how do you sit there? And as you said, you know, the, and it's good because the '80s are coming back. But how do you catch that lightning in a bottle from the '80s? Because now you're you're matured. You've gone through a lot of life. How do you how do you relate that to your writing when you want to get back to that great '80s sound and the different soundings that you talked about? But you're an older person now; you're wiser. How does that affect your writing? Yeah, I'm an older person, and how it affects my writing is I'm a I'm a decent writer now. You know, I know how to write. I know how to write a song that's going to mean something to me. Right? I'm someone who's been writing for himself as an artist for years. And it's like, okay, this, this, this is going to be how it's framed. If it was a painting, this is how it's being framed as a painting. This is the genre it's going to be in. But writing a great song is a great song. Like, I am so proud of Better Than The Rest. Better Than The Rest was like, I mean, Pablo would come over one or two times a week. And, and I'm tapping into the emotion. I'm tapping into the, the, the music. Pablo's coming up with great stuff. I mean, sometimes we're coming up with music and lyric all in one night, and I'm singing like a rough vocal. And it, 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 it was effortless. I can't even begin to tell you it was not like, oh, man, how am I ever going to get back to that feeling? That feeling, I approached it in such an honest way. Pablo and I, I think, approached it in such a cool, kind of honest way that there was, there was no strain. There was no, like, oh, how are we going to do this? I mean, it took a while to put the record together to mix it and to technicalities of it but the writing was not was not something that stressed me out man now i was i was, I was feeling it now know? now how do you sit there it's a it's a different world when it comes to albums i always talk to my guests you know and then friends of mine about right. how you know buying an album used to be a big thing you know it was awesome you know you me and my friend mark Esposito would ride our bikes to the record store and you know buy sure. refugee or you know tom petty's uh damn the torpedoes with refugee and all that stuff and and it was a whole right. process now though albums aren't i mean kids are buying old vinyl now but albums People aren't into albums as much because you can buy just one song. Like, you know, when we were younger, if you bought an album and, and two songs were good and the rest sucked, you were pissed off. You don't need to do that now. So how did you sit there and attack that, that there is a short attention span? People don't want to listen to a whole album anymore. Did you hopefully depend on your older crowd or did you say maybe things will change when people, you know, because the 80s are coming back. I, I basically thought that I wanted to make a contemporary 80s album that would be, the con and the concept of when we came up, you know, maybe you were a little later than me, but you didn't just listen to one song. You didn't just put on Justin Bieber's single and then wait for the next one to be released, you know, with, with you know, and, and have 16 songs. You had 10, 11 songs on a record. You listened to the whole record. You digested the whole thing. Now, besides the fact that the AOR world that I live, that is embracing this record in a very huge way, is like, 
they buy C- they still want CDs. They want a CD. They want to hold on to something. I don't have any vinyl for them yet. Maybe I will at some point. But they want to hold on to a CD. They want to touch something. But when I was making it, I, I can't. I was more into the old mindset of this is a total album. This is a work. Okay, you're gonna love the first song. You're gonna love the last song. You're gonna. You're, I'm taking you somewhere. I'm not just. I'm not just. You know, if you're not along for the ride, I get. I don't care. Okay, I don't give a fuck about you then. Okay, don't be along for the ride. I'm not worried about you because. I didn't worry if the songs were four, four minutes and 20 seconds or four minutes and 30 seconds. I wasn't worried about length of tunes, how many solos, how the arrangement was kind of, I didn't worry about that stuff. I wanted to make the most honest record I could possibly make. And I think we kind of, we kind of did pretty good. Man. I, I feel like we did pretty good, you know? Now, now as you're writing the songs and you're starting to record uh-huh. them, in your mind, do you have, because there's 11 songs on it, do you have an idea as you're starting out where that song is going to fall in the album? Because some are harder, man. You know, some are soft, some are a little softer, some are harder. Do you sit there as you're writing them saying, okay, you know what? This is going to be a kick ass number five song, or this might be a great at number two. What was, do you know that as you're writing them? Uh, you know, uh, I didn't think about that till the end, but as, as, as I think I think stuff like that happens, you know, you do put thought into that. But I don't think so much, like, do we need a ballad? Yeah, we wanted a ballad. Do we want it to be a ballad-heavy record? Absolutely not, okay? Uh, you know, um, I thought that, you know, uh, Why Does Over Have to Be So Sad was a great opener. It just rang out to me as an opener. Did I think that as I was writing it? Absolutely not. You know, but as I look back on all of the songs that we recorded, Pablo and I, uh, I mean, I, I kind of feel like the sequencing is pretty, the only way it could be, you know, is, is the best it could be. It really is. But I wouldn't say that that was part of the writing, the writing concept of it. Now, the, 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 title, the album's better than the rest. That's the number two song on the album. When you, how did that become right. the, how did that become the title track? Okay, better than the rest is deserved because it it earned it. Okay, remember that. Why? When what you call listen? How did they get there? They earned it. Better than the rest. We had done like five kind of demos, right? And better than the rest, we maybe it was maybe a little better than the demo. Okay, we all the parts were there. I did kind of a good rough mix, and Pablo's playing it for people, and people are going, "It's a fucking great song." Pablo, are you going to release this? Is it going to go? And Pablo and I are just writing and kind of doing the record. And then we start, we go, okay, should we should we take it out of it? Should we drop kick this song out of the studio and see what happens? So we went to a label in Italy called Frontier. Frontier listened, uh, you know, not interested. Thanks very much. Uh, not interested. Don't care. Now at this point, Pablo and I don't care. This record's coming out either way. When we're done with this record, this record's being either self-released or if we can get help, that's great. And so, AOR Heaven, who I met through I, I um, through, through my my friend in in, in Spain, you know, uh, Indigo Balboa, said there's a guy George up at um, George is up at AOR Heaven. He also he had. Uh, uh, What's his name? Beauvoir, John Beauvoir. He had a bunch. Of, it was it was another good label that released a lot of rock and roll. Okay, uh, you know, uh, Frontier had a lot of acts, man. Frontier is a little factory like in the sense that they let you do a record. They have a little more here to say about the kind of record you're going to do. You kind of put do shows the way they put them together. They kind of control your merchandise. You get the idea. It's like there's a lot of control. George was very cool, man. George said to me, you know what? I love better than the rest. This is this is a fucking great, I really like it. Um, keep going. I want to release this. And we were like, holy shit. I just got a record deal at 69 years old. And I'm like, that's crazy, okay? That's pretty nuts. So what else could I call this record? Plus, I think better than the rest is like, what do you hear all the young kids? Oh, man. 
you know, we dropped the gold, man. We, we got all the money. We're, we're the richest motherfuckers in the world, you know. We're the best. We're unbelievable. Well, the song's not actually about being the best, but it kind of, and something it, it had, it would piss the most people off. So that's why I called it. <laughs> now, now, how did how did you pick your last song? Because it's always, you know, that's always a thing. You know, the last song is always on the album that when you hear the yeah. last song that's a great song you don't want the album to end so you start the album over if the last song sucks yeah. you're like thank god it's like a movie if the ending sucks you're like thank god this crap is over how did you pick the last song and, and did you sit there and say this is going to keep people digging the song well I, I, I want it's probably the longest song on the album right and I thought that it has a symphonic element to it and again, with 80s music, there is a symphonic element to 80s music. It has a bigness. The drum sounds, the strings, even when strings come in. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, I influence like Pink Floyd or, or any of the bands where, you know, we got, we, we got the themes going through it. And it felt more like a large work that, I don't know, I would love to perform with an orchestra one day. And I said... Let's just put the kid. We put the kitchen sink in that thing, and I said, "Let that be the last song, man. Let that be the song that kind of takes people on this odyssey, this journey from the beginning of. Of, I mean, it's a love song, you know, and you know just how you feel. It's a, you know, the lyric is like, you know, all with all these days and all my life, you know, this is like, here I am, man. I'm 69. I am still a passionate singer. I am still someone." who feels like, I mean, what do we all want? We want to be relevant. We want people to listen to what we're doing as artists. We want people to connect in some kind of fucking way. And I felt that that song was like, you know, all, all these days and all my life, you know, I, you know just how you feel, you know? It's like, know that there is a, there is an, there is a sincerity to this, you know? And, and maybe, you'll buy, maybe you'll buy in, maybe you won't, but you know what? I feel good about it. I feel, I feel like, it's honest. If nothing else, I'm proud that it's out there. You know? Now, as you know, it's an album, and we all grow up with the album artwork. How do you go about picking a cover? How did you, you know, it's it's you. Of course, you know, you don't have that 80s hair. Do you miss that big 80s hair? Right. Well, you know, I, I shot it twice. I had, like, some of the more emotional shots, which are good. You know, you look at the back, there's one with me. You know, I thought the one with me, with the, with the rap song is kind of like a, a shout out to the Rocky Four people. Uh, and then there's some with me holding a guitar and, you know, uh, very emotional. But I figured people hadn't seen me in a really long time. I just wanted, like, a really good shot of me, man. And Innes, this, this, this uh, photographer I know in, in, in L.A. here, I said, you know, just give me a great, you know, like, Give me a wisdom shot. I want people to look at me and say, look at him, man. He's fucking still, he's okay. He's more than okay. Look at him. He's, he's doing great, you know? And that's what that shot was about. That's how we came up with that. You now, know? now, and I just, I, you missed the question about the hair. Do you miss that 80s hair? Because you had, you had the real long hair. Do you miss that hairstyle? Like, that was the thing? Not, you know what? Don't, Steven, because when you hit about 55, 60, you got that long hair, you look fucking homeless, okay? <laughs> I don't... <laughs> you know? You just get that look like, oh, man, what are you holding on to? You know, I can't think of... You know, maybe maybe Jeff Bridges can pull it off, but that's about it, you know? Now... And, uh, you know, I was going to say, and you're right, because I always joke. I always sit there and say, you know, when people are over 50, if they have a ponytail, they better be, you know, a, ma a magician, a magician, or working at like a video store, but there's no more video stars. Exactly. So, so now, what's the future for you? You got this album done. Now, what do you, are you going to tour, or what's going on? Okay, so we're two and a half months, maybe September 27th. October 27, November 20, we're not, we're not even two months in, okay? And I can't tell you, I don't know if you looked at any of the reviews, people are fucking loving this record. I, I am leaving for Germany next Wednesday to do the Heat Festival, and that 
that is going to be like the culmination of this whole thing. Part of my record deal was like, we want you to be at the Heat Festival and we want you to debut the record there. So all that's going to happen, okay? And then from there, I really want to parlay this. I want to work behind this record. I want to, I want to be, Steve, between you and me, I want to do 20, 25 dates a year, you know, of, of supporting this record. And then, you know, I mean, I got a ton of people on Facebook and, you know, at just freaking out about this record, this record, man. I, you know, I'm almost at the 5,000 limit. I got, I'm going to have to send them to my business site, you know, because I can't take anymore. And I am so happy about it. We love this record. Where have you been? We love this record. Da, 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 da. Just waiting. I'm a huge fan. I'm, you know, hopefully we get to do another one. I think we will. You know, I think we will. This, this album is going to do something. There's something about it. There's something in there that I think is going to take me to another level with this. You know, I'm not saying it's going to be like, you know, going to be the fucking Beatles, but I think something good is going to happen with this. I really do. And I think it will, and it's good. And, and you, you're you're older now. You have the wisdom. What do you, though, now when you look back, what do you miss most about the 80s? Um, Jesus, that's a tough question. What do I miss most about the 80s? I mean, I miss my hair because I'm bald now, but that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, I guess the physical appearance thing, you know, the 80s were a weird time, man. I mean, the MTV set and what we did and where we took it, we were, you know, we were a little crazy, man, you know? There was a ton of cocaine going around. There was a lot of drug problems, you know? There are a lot of people drinking themselves into oblivion. A lot of people died. What I miss about the 80s, you know... I put into that record, you know, I miss those kind of sounds. I miss those kind of songs, you know, and that's what I try to capture there. It would have, the things I miss are mostly musical. And I, and I got to go back to them. I got to revisit them, which is great. As far as the social aspects or the, or, or what went on, you know, man, you know, we hurt ourselves. We really did hurt ourselves in a big way, you know, I got, well, I got kind of, at least, well, I got I got one more question. The sure. the the Rockies montage, very famous. Right. Do people still come up to you, and do they know it's you, or do your fans know it's you? Because with now with cable, I mean, you can you'll sit there on you know AMC. They'll play Rocky one, two, three, and four. Did sure, you think sure. do you think that that has kept your muse that song alive? Because people just. They know that. I mean, it, it's it's like, it's an iconic scene. Absolutely, Stephen. It's like, here, I, people say to me, why why does that stick around? I go, well, first of all, you got a hard, rocking kind of, you know, I mean, part of what I do is I'm an emotional singer, right? So, you know, the song is based in the, in the end of my, it's all about the end of my first marriage, right? But you take the lyric, right, and you go, you know, we're not indestructible, you know, it, it becomes a universal struggle of like, can we get where we need to go, you know? Can we get something out of life that we're gonna appreciate? Are we gonna be able to do this? And that and that emotion that was in this song gets drop kicked into a movie where people go, where it becomes like a mantra for people, like, oh my God, we're gonna struggle, we're gonna fight, we're gonna do whatever, to, you know, you said, we're gonna jersey it, you know. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna. There's a definite East Coast vibe that is universal to, in that song. And yes, people know that about me. And you know, when 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 uh, people on Facebook, one of my favorite things when people ask me to friend me, they go, "Is this Robert Tepper from No Easy No Easy Way Out?" And I go, "Yes, it's me. You know, and it's me. You know, this is what I was doing. This is what I'm doing now. You know, and it's like." Being part of that franchise has given me my my seat at the table, you know. So I will never I will never put it I will never be mad about it or sad about it or not want to do it in concert or sick of it because I think it's an awesome sounding record from the drum sound to the vocals to the to the guitar sounds. I think it's it's smoking, you know. It sounds great and it still sounds great. And that's due to, and that's due, Stephen. That's due to what. The good part of 
part of the internet, not the part that's destroying the world, the part that, <laughs> hey, we could, we could still look back on everything and say, you know what, this, this was something that was really cool, you know? This that's was awesome. something that was happening. I want, I, want to, I want to thank you for coming on, Robert. Um, people, go to the website. Thank you, man. No problem. Go to, yeah, the, go go to the website, robertpepperworld.com. People, go check okay. out his t- bio. He's got his – everything's listed there. Listen, go buy the new album. And he's right. I looked on a few websites. Thank it's you, getting four-star reviews. It's getting five-star reviews. So please check out Robert. Go to robertpepperworld.com. Don't forget my website, coopertalk.com. You coopertalk.net I'm sorry you can find over 760 episodes there email me cooper at coopertalk.net twitter it's at coopertalk remember I'm Steve Cooper I'm only as hip as my guest don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins and I'll talk to you next time